Please turn with me to the book of Jonah, chapter 1. Jonah's kind of hard to find, so if you find Matthew and then turn left, about 40 pages, you'll be there, okay? A group of prophets, short books, small prophets. He's right kind of in the middle of all that, right before Micah, if that helps. <laughs> Never mind. Okay, uh, if you, this has nothing to do with the message, but if you miss the, uh, looking at the paper this morning, this is what I did this weekend. You notice, uh, I did a wedding, uh, but if, look at the bottom, uh, actually did it at the ice rink. <laughs> did a wedding on, on skates. That's the first one I've ever done, and uh, I just want you to know that I'm, I am now available for destination weddings. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, it's nothing to do with anything, but it was really fun. Really fun, really sweet wedding. Okay. Uh, Have you ever been asked to do a job that you really didn't want to do? Remember as a child, we were were given chores. Clean up your room, vacuum, mow the lawn, scrub toilets, clean dishes, set the table, help with dinner. All these things uh, we didn't want to do and we thought were really clever. You remember that? How, how clever we thought we were? We, we figured out little strategies to avoid these things. Uh, we, we learned to go deaf at just the right point, right? We could hear the cartoons but couldn't hear mom calling to come clean something. Or we'd procrastinate. We thought, you know, if I, if I find lots of other things to do and they seem kind of important or whatever, I'll just kind of put the job off, put the job off, put the job off. And pretty soon, you know, mom or dad will just get frustrated and they'll just do it themselves. Or if I complain long enough, I can just wear my parents down. If I just complain and complain and complain, pretty soon they'll just give up and they won't want to ask me to, to do it again. Or if it gets really bad, it's a really bad job and things are really desperate, I can just maybe kind of slip off and hide. I don't know if you've noticed, but... Um, our children learn exactly the same strategies. You know, it's strange. They just seem to get passed down from generation to generation to generation. When we look at the book of Jonah, Jonah employs the same childlike strategies to avoid God's will for his life. Now, we're continuing our series this morning on uh, unlikely heroes. And you may ask yourself, what, what's heroic about Jonah? You've probably read the story before and it doesn't, necessarily end well for Jonah. What, what's so heroic about him? Notice, remember, it's, it's unlikely heroes, okay? Jonah runs from the will of God, and yet, amazingly, God uses him anyway. God does incredible things through Jonah, creates this amazing revival for a whole city, a very large city. And yet, Jonah doesn't get to enjoy the fruit of his labor. And I think there are a lot of lessons that we can learn from Jonah's life. I'm going to begin this morning, chapter 1. And I want us to read verses 1 through 3 together. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from The presence of the Lord. Uh, First lesson that we observe in Jonah's life is you can actually run away from the will of God for your life. It's possible. Jonah's prophesying about the year 780 BC. He's prophesying during the reign of Jeroboam II. Jonah himself is a prophet from the city of Gath Hefer, which is a, a small town just a few miles north of Nazareth. So if we understand the story correctly, he's at home and God's word comes to him. And rather than moving 
toward God's will, he moves away from God's will. And what he does, if I can put this on a map for you, okay, this is the modern city of Jaffa, which is uh, just a few miles north of Tel Aviv. I'll give you a little perspective on that. Jaffa, as it's called now, or Joppa, is about here on the map. Okay, you see the Mediterranean, Europe in the north, move toward the east. Jonah was called to take a trip about 550 miles to the northeast. Uh, if he walked, which is probably what he would have done, it would have taken uh, maybe about a month, month and a half, two months, to walk to Nineveh and to fulfill the will of God for his life. Instead, this is what Jonah did. He got on board a ship there in Joppa, and he went there. <laughs> it kind of helps, doesn't it, to, to visualize it. You don't really feel the impact. You just read the words. He's going in the exact opposite direction, 2,500 miles. Now, we don't know exactly where Tarshish was, probably on the southern coast of Spain, but if you look at ancient Near Eastern literature, Tarshish just basically means as far away as you can imagine a city being. That's where Tarshish is, okay? And that's where Jonah goes. He goes as far away, or he at least intends to go, as far away from the will of God as he possibly can. Why? Shouldn't he have known better? He's a prophet of God. Well, I'm going to give you a couple possibilities. Uh, Just conjecture on my point. Why did Jonah leave? Maybe it was the danger. It's a a dangerous thing to go into the city of Nineveh. I want you to keep your place here in Jonah. Turn toward the New Testament, just two books, to the book of Nahum. Nahum chapter 3. In verse 1, Nahum writes about 100 years after Jonah, and he writes to the city of Nineveh and about the city of Nineveh and about God's judgment that's going to come on the city of Nineveh. Nahum chapter 3, verse 1 says, Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, Horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses, countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. This is a description of the city of Nahum. It was a very, very bad place. If you imagine the worst war movies that are produced today... The, the goriest movies, Nineveh and the Assyrians, were much worse. And what they did to their captives, they were evil, evil, brutal people. And they were known as such. And they were proud of that fact. And they were full of lies, it says, and sorceries. And whenever they won a battle, they, they, they brutalized their enemy. They, they were just a really, really wicked people. And God says, Jonah, I want you to go into their capital city and send a message from me. I'm going to destroy them. That's not, that's not a good assignment. Okay? That's scary. That's a very scary assignment. Imagine being called by God today to go to Mecca during Ramadan, and I want you to go into Mecca, and I want you to stand up in the middle of Mecca during Ramadan, and I want you to say, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Now get going. Probably book a flight for Tarshish, right? It is literally a dangerous assignment for Jonah. Now, the Assyrians were not at the height of their power at this point in time, but they would come back to power shortly. 
And they were still, at this point in time, a really vicious and brutal people. This is a dangerous assignment for Jonah. So maybe he's afraid of the danger. Uh, maybe he's concerned about the difficulty. He's been a pretty successful prophet to this point in time. And it's probably not likely that the people are going to respond really well to this prophet of Yahweh from a tiny little country that is, it's, a, it's an outpost, and they have their local gods. Are, are they going to respond, oh, Jonah, we, we're so glad that you came. We want to repent. We want to respond. No, we have our own gods. You have your God, Jonah, and you think your God from your small little country who can only manage this, this area of, of Israel can come into the great gods of the Assyrians, Asur, and uh, Nanshi, the fish goddess, which is interesting, will come up next week in our story. Our gods are more powerful than your gods. Would this powerful, brutal, pagan people respond in repentance? Not likely. It's not likely. Third possibility is that Jonah is worried about his reputation. And, and I think there's probably some validity in this. I want you to keep your place right here near Jonah and turn back in the historical book, 2 Kings chapter 14. There's a description of the times of Jonah and Jonah's ministry in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23. Okay. At this point in the book of Kings, remember that the nation of Israel has divided. We have a northern kingdom that is normally called Israel, southern kingdom called Judah. Jonah lives in and prophesies to the northern kingdom, whose capital is Samaria, that had no good kings ever in all of its history. They were always uh, evil kings. Okay? Reading in verse 23, chapter 14, it says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. So he had a very long reign. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, which he made Israel sin, which was idolatry. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of Gath-Hefer. Okay, so notice, Jonah is prophesying during the reign of an evil king. Nevertheless, the word that God brings to the nation of Israel is a word of prosperity. In spite of their sin, in spite of the fact that they have an evil king, God blesses them at this point in their history and he extends their borders. They have peace. The nation of Assyria is not as powerful as it once was. And so there is peace and there's prosperity. Jonah gets to deliver a really good message. He's probably a very popular prophet because there are some other guys, Hosea and Amos, who are prophesying at the same time. And they are saying to the nation of Israel, repent or Assyria will come down and destroy us. Repent or Assyria will come down and destroy us. And Jonah's over there prophesying this wonderful news of prosperity and expanded borders. So he's a popular prophet. He's telling them a message that they want to hear. Remember, the role of the prophet is to pronounce the word of God to people. And now Jonah's being called to go into the enemy's camp. Okay, this enemy that Amos and Hosea are saying is going to grow in power again and they're going to come down and they're going to be God's hand of judgment against us. And now God wants him to go into their capital city and proclaim to them that they must repent unless they want to be destroyed. I suspect as we read on in the story and it comes, I think, pretty clear, Jonah's afraid that he actually will be successful. And that his enemies 
will repent and God will relent and God will not destroy them. And Jonah doesn't want them to be spared. Jonah wants them to be destroyed. Jonah wants to serve the Lord, but he wants to serve the Lord in his way and in his timing. And Jonah's perspective is these people are enemies. God's perspective is these are all my people. And he wants to give them an opportunity to turn and to repent, but Jonah doesn't. And we don't know for sure what Jonah's motivation was, but we do know that Jonah was afraid of the Assyrians and he hated the Assyrians and he wanted the, the Assyrians destroyed. And so when God says go and proclaim to them repentance, Jonah runs. Okay? First lesson we learn from Jonah's life is this. You can run from the will of God. Second is you can run from your calling. Jonah was called to do this task because he was a prophet. There's several words that name this concept of, of prophet. The most common one is Navi, and it means a spokesman. As a prophet, Jonah is not to declare his own words. He is to declare only the words that God tells him. Jonah is not to pursue his own agenda for his life. He is to pursue the agenda of God for his life because he's a spokesman. He's an ambassador. He doesn't speak on his own initiative. And that's why he's called to this task, because he is a prophet. I want you to hold your place still here in Jonah and turn to the book of Ezekiel for me. Ezekiel chapter 3. In chapter 3 of Ezekiel, the prophet, we have a description of the role of a prophet. Ezekiel 3.16, it says, At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Ezekiel, son of man, I have appointed you as a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the the wicked from his wicked way that he may live, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand, because you didn't warn him. Yet if you have warned the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered yourself. Again, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I place an obstacle before him, he will die. Since you have not warned him, he shall die in his sin, and his righteous deeds, which he has done, shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. However, if you have warned the righteous man that the righteous should not sin and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning, and you have delivered yourself, because you spoke on my behalf. That's the job of a prophet. In good times, the prophets were always in the king's palace. They were interpreting God's word on behalf of the king. They were like uh, trusted advisors. But in the northern kingdom of Israel, there never really were good times. (laughs) There never were good kings that followed the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. It just didn't happen. And so the prophets were always going against the culture. In fact, this, this whole role of prophet rose up because the kings weren't leading the people to obey the will of God. And so prophets had to come in and they had to denounce the direction of the nation. They were always going counterculture, always counterculture, always. It was a really, really hard life. And so when God called these men and women, it was a difficult calling. And God held up their lives as as a paradigm for how he was going to deal with the nation of Israel itself. And so sometimes they went through great hardships as an illustration for the nation of Israel. Hosea and Gomer is one of the most overwhelmingly brutal stories. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. 
Hosea is a prophet, and he's told, he says, I, I, told by God, he, God says, I want you to go, and I want you to marry a woman who will be unfaithful to you. <laughs> really? Yeah, because I'm going to use your life as an illustration for the nation. Really? Could you call somebody else to that? I've got my eye on someone who, over here who will be faithful. No, no. Go and marry a woman who's going to be unfaithful to you. And sure enough, Hosea marries her. Her name's Gomer. For goodness sake, I mean, <laughs> he marries Gomer. And guess what? She's unfaithful to him. And then God says, I want you to go and get her again because her husband is selling her as a slave. Because she was unfaithful to him as well. So no, go and buy her. Go to your bank and take out money and, and purchase her back for yourself. Because that's how I love the nation of Israel. What a calling. What a calling. Always going against the culture. According to one Jewish tradition, on this boat that Jonah is sailing on, there were the 70 nations that were known at this point in time were all represented by different sailors on the boat. And according to one tradition, on the Day of Atonement, the nation of Israel would read the book of Jonah. And after the reading of the book of Jonah, they would all cry out and say, we are Jonah. We have neglected our calling. God, you called us to be a light to the nations. Instead, we hate those around us. We take your blessings and we hoard them for ourselves. We step with the culture. There's nothing distinct or different about us. And so we're given the book of Jonah so that we'd read it and say, am I Jonah? Is there anything distinct or different? Am I walking with the culture? Am I a light to the nations? Do I love my enemies because God loves them? Do I pray for those who persecute me because of God's deep, deep love, not just for me, but for all people? And so we read the book of Jonah and we're supposed to read it and say, am I Jonah? Is this me? Am I running away from the will of God? Am I running from God's calling in my life? Or am I listening to the voice of the Lord and walking submissively with him? The lesson that we learned from Jonah is you can, in fact, run from your calling. However, you can't run for the consequences. God's really stubborn. He's really stubborn about his will. And when we run from his calling as his servants, there will be consequences. It affects us. It's not natural for God's servants to be turning away from him and running away from him. And so it affects us. It, it really uh, transforms our character. I want you to turn back to the book of Jonah with me and read chapter 1 and verse 4. It says, The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid and every man cried to his God and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to, us, said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you from? Tell us, please, quickly, because the storm is about to swamp the boat and kill all of us. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. 
Then the men became extremely frightened and they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them, I'm fleeing from my God. So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on Yahweh, Jonah's God, and said, we earnestly pray, Yahweh, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Three effects that I see in Jonah's life. The first is he becomes callous toward life itself. The storm is raging. The boat is tossing. Waves are coming on. And where's Jonah? He's sound asleep in the hold of the ship. Sound asleep. No concern for his life. No concern for the sailors' lives. One of the ironies in the book of Jonah is that these pagan sailors have so much more concern for life itself. They're concerned for Jonah's life. When he says, throw me into the sea, they row desperately because they don't want to throw him into the sea. And when they have to do it, they don't want to take human life. They say, God, don't hold this man's blood on us. Please forgive us. We know it's wrong to kill a man, but it seems that this is your will. They have concern for life. Jonah has no concern for life. That's one of the ironies of this story. You know, and the other thing that, that always strikes me every time I read this is I think, Jonah, if the solution is you going into the sea, why don't you just jump? You know, have you ever thought that? Why do you put the burden on others? But when we're in sin and we're running away from God, we don't take responsibility for ourselves, do we? Now I'll tell you, this is not probably a big ship. It would not be difficult at all for Jonah just to jump. Say, Jonah, jump. Why don't you jump? He doesn't have any concern for anyone else. First effect that I see in Jonah's life. Second, he becomes dull to the truth. Look at me in chapter 1 again, verse 7. Each man says to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Really? Do you really fear him? I fear God who made heavens and earth. He made the dry land. He made the sea that's raging right now. And I'm afraid of him. Really? If you feared him and you honored his name, why would you be running from him? Do you really fear him? See, Jonah had a lot of theology. He was a prophet. He had prophet's degrees and stuff, right? He knew, he knew the word. He knew Psalm 139 that Mike read earlier. Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the uttermost parts of the sea, that's Tarshish. Even there, your hand will lay hold of me. He knew that, but he only knew it here. It didn't affect the decisions and the choices that he made. And there are a lot of us who know a lot of the Bible, but it doesn't affect the decisions and the choices that we make. And so Paul said the goal of our instruction is knowledge. 
No, you should say, no, 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 that's not. The goal of our instruction is love. Okay? The knowledge is a means to an end that it would transform us into this fundamental characteristic of God, which is love. Love for God, love for others. And when we are struggling in loving others, it is a symptom that our love for God is not where it should be. Two great commandments, remember? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus says, the second one is just like it now. Love your neighbor as yourself because God loves your neighbor. And if you love God, you'll be like God. And God is love. And so these things will meet. And if you're having a hard time forgiving or loving or showing compassion and mercy, it is a reflection of the fact that your relationship with God is not where it should be. How do you fix that? You say, oh, let me try harder to love. You know, you listen to the voice of God and you say, God, my, obviously my loves and my passions, my priorities are not right. I accept that conviction and I, I, I turn, I repent, please forgive me. And then you begin on building or rebuilding that love for God because as you rebuild that love for God and that passion for God, you will take on his heart and it will be transmitted into your love even for your enemies. Even for your enemies. And you see with Jonah, there's a problem with Jonah. And it didn't just start the day that he went down to Joppa. He had obviously been building resentment and anger toward the Assyrians, towards what he, people he viewed as enemies for years. It didn't just happen like that. Okay? Sin is a, it's a slow process. It just kind of gradually takes control of us. I remember um, at our house in New York when I was growing up, we had, uh, we had wood siding stained wood siding and uh, you don't see a lot of this down here but but the northeast got vines ivy grows all over the place and we had ivy that would grow up in our in the back and it's a nice ground cover but that ground cover starts going up and if you have a, a house that has wood siding that that ground cover will go up underneath the wood siding and if you don't cut it and pull it out it'll just grow and grow and grow and pretty soon it'll just it'll tear the siding off the house you know it doesn't happen in one day it just happens slowly you go, well, I'll, I'll trim it tomorrow. I'll pull out that ivy tomorrow. And then you put it off and put it off and put it off. And that's basically how sin works in our lives. It's just kind of slow, kind of degenerative. And then pretty soon, boom, sides are popping off your house. And you're in the hold of a ship running away from God. How did I get here? Okay. Third effect on Jonah's life is this. He was separated from God by his sin. There's a, a motif that's running throughout this first section of Jonah. And it's a contrast between going down and getting up. God says, Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. And what does Jonah do? It says he went down to Joppa. He went down into the hold of the ship. And then he goes down into the belly of the whale. Okay, down, down, down. And when God comes and he speaks to him in the fish, he says, Jonah, get up. The captain of the ship says, Jonah, get up. Arise, because your sin has created a separation. And God is chasing you, and he's chasing you, and he's chasing you. Maybe, uh, perhaps this morning, God is chasing some of you. Maybe you've never for the first time turned and said, God, I recognize you're chasing me. I know that you, that you love me because you proved it in Jesus. That you sent him to proclaim life to me and freedom to me. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus to chase me down. I accept. 
You need to turn for the first time and say, God, I accept a relationship with you. Thank you for removing the debt of my sin in Jesus. Thank you. Or maybe you've been a believer a long time, but there are just little areas of sin where you've kind of gone down away from the will of God. Or maybe everything's good, but there are people around you you need to pray for. Uh, We're going to take communion as we close. And um, man, would you come forward and serve us? So coming forward and serving us, what I'd like for us to do is just uh, take a few moments and thank God that he always chases after us. And in particular, that he has chased after us in Jesus. Let's take a few moments just silently before the Lord and give him thanks for that. John chapter 6, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. The living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So he who eats of me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Jesus gave the the symbol of bread as a representation of his body. And eating his body was uh, an illustration of faith. That we believe that his sufferings were for us and uh, in our place. So let's take the body of Christ together. He also gave the cup as an illustration of his blood. And again, uh, the symbol of drinking the cup, symbol of belief or faith. I believe that Jesus' blood paid for the penalty of my sins. So when I drink it, I'm believing that his blood was in in place of my blood, that he paid the price for my sins. So let's take the cup together. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that you proved to us that you would spare nothing to chase us down and restore us to fellowship with you. Father, thank you for the wonderful story of Jonah in in which we can see ourselves and we can uh, see our propensity to to run and hide and uh, complain and get frustrated. And uh, as a result, Lord, we we don't like the the consequences. We need fellowship with you. Uh, We need to be close to you. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would speak to us this morning, draw each of us closer. We thank you for the example of Jonah. Thank you, Lord, um, for the illustration that we see in his life, uh, that you are unrelenting and chasing after us. Thank you, Father, that we can trust you, that you know what's best, uh, and that your will is always perfect. I pray, Lord, that even this week, you would uh, draw us close to yourself, increase our confidence in you and in your will. Thank you again, Lord, uh, for giving us Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Jonah chapter 2.